2: Hey everybody! Welcome to another Baseball America Prospects podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined by JJ Cooper to talk about the Rays system today. JJ wrote up the Rays for us. Uh, it's one of the best systems in baseball. JJ, the Rays have had success developing homegrown talent in the past, but I feel like this system is as deep as it's been any time in recent memory.
0: Right. I would say the the thing I would say I think that the Rays have done a really good job of in the last decade is some really good pro scouting. It's not that they haven't developed homegrown players, but they really did better, I would say, at developing players that they acquired and made them better than they did as far as drafting international. I would say that that kind of goes back to, I mean, when you go back, now if you go back when they were our top farm system a decade ago when it was the Evan Longorias, David Prices, all that, you know, then that was a little different story. And they do, again, even going forward, Matt Moore, Blake Snell, They've had guys, but I completely agree. When you talk about the depth of this system right now, it, uh, you want a farm system to have depth. Even more so, you want a farm system to have stars because the reality of it is is depth is nice, but one Ronald Acuna, one Juan Soto, one Shoei Otani is worth more than many useful role players. And this is a system that has both. Uh, it has Wander Franco, you know, at the top who is a star in the making. He's not even, you know, a star in the making before he ever, you know, gets out of his teenage years. And then, but it also has, you know, we do 30 in the handbook and we go beyond that as far as other, we're going to do, we go beyond that with supplement as far as guys who could play in the big leagues next year. And this is a system that has more than 30 guys who have plausible paths to the big leagues. It's a system that was already really good and then had a really good, a really, a well-done draft and a very fortunate draft. They picked 16, 31, 32, and I would say it's fair to say the guys they got at 16 and 31 were guys who no one expected to be sitting there at those spots.
2: Absolutely. You know, you mentioned the Rays' uh, lack of success in the draft. Here's a rundown of some of their first-round picks from 2009, you know, LeVon Washington. LeVon Washington, Drew Drew Vettelson, Justin O'Connor, Josh Saleh, James Harris, Grayson Garvin, Kess Carter. You know, the 2011 draft was interesting. They had 10 of the first 60 picks. They pretty much whiffed on nine of them, but the one they got was Blake Snell. That's a really good one. That's a really, really good one. The others, I mean, you look, you know, Taylor Gary, Mikey Matzhoek have made the majors, but, you know, Jake Hager, Brandon Martin, who triple homicide, Tyler Goodell, Jeff Ames. I mean, even into, you know... Later years, you know, Casey Gillespie, Garrett Whitley. These guys are not impact types. That some of them but, are still prospects and have but, room to grow. But now, it seems like they have. You know, their last two drafts have been pretty fruitful. It
0: seems. Last two drafts, but the other thing I would say is, is, I feel like on the international market, they've done a really good job lately. Also, there was a lot of top talents who they signed. You know, July two, Wander Franco, obviously the top, but Wander Franco, Ronaldo Hernandez, Moises Gomez, Jesus Sanchez. It's a system that has a very nice spread. They have high school draftees, they've got college draftees, they've got international guys, and then they are still, as we saw with Joey Wendell last year, this is still an organization that really does a good job also of bargain hunting. Joey Wendell is at this point largely a a somewhat free talent almost, and they turned him into something pretty useful. And that is something, when you talk about overarching philosophy that the Rays have, I think one of the clearly the overarching philosophies they have is especially players, not, we're not talking about first base DH bats, but middle infielders who are a little bit questionable defensively, but can hit, they feel like that they can figure out a ways to make them better defensively, but also more importantly, they'll find a variety of roles for them. And so they figure that they have multiple ways they can get them into a big league lineup. Uh, Brandon Lau, who made it up for them last year, second baseman all the way coming up, but before he got to the big leagues, they started working him out in left and right field, and he played that some too because that gives him other opportunities to play in a lineup that also has, as we just talked about, Joey Wendell and Daniel Ross. You know, it's had a number of guys who can play second base. Uh, Christian Arroyo, who they you know acquired last year, is a guy who... I think his if he's going to make it to the big leagues, his role, you know, regular, his role's is going to be bouncing around a little bit, probably. Because you
2: almost hope it's like what Daniel Robertson has done,
0: right? You're, you want some versatility there, and again, you go down the, you know, down below that, Nick Solak in the minors. Um, I know Vidal Bruhan's pretty much played second base right now. I would not be shocked at all considering how the Rays develop guys if they try him in a multitude of other positions because he's a guy who might be valuable at multiple positions. So they have a lot of guys who. They look at it as, A, can you hit, and B, do you have the defensive skills that we can play you somewhere? And if, they, if you can answer yes to both of those, they will figure out a way to get the most out of you. Remember, you can always play someone down on the defensive
2: spectrum, and figuring out a way to get a bat in the lineup is really the best
0: way to go about this. And you look at it, again, Andrew, Andrew Velasquez who came up for them late in the year. We were, you know, we, we see a lot of Durham games here. We're, we're located in Durham, North Carolina. And if you showed up at a Durham Bulls game, once Velasquez came up, which was very early in the season, you had no idea where you were going to see Velasquez in, you know, on the field, because it might be shortstop, it might be center field, it might be second base. I saw him in left, I think. It might be point. left. I mean, again, he played a little bit of everywhere, but that is just what they do. This, and again, they don't just do this at the major league level. We talk about the opener. We kind of saw, again, and you could say in the main minors when you see it, it's kind of just, you could almost call it a bullpen day. But they started messing with that a little bit last year in some ways in Durham. And then this year, they definitely used it in Durham in addition to the big leagues. They use their minor leagues as a little bit of an incubator, like we're talking about here. They, they do a lot of innovative stuff. But the key thing is, is beyond everything else, is this is the young team, that has very plausible impact bats coming up, and,
2: and some arms too. And that's the interesting thing. We talk about You know, finding the guys that have some versatility, can do some things for you. You still need the guys who can carry your team a little bit. And one of the guys that most people think will be that guy sooner rather than later, despite his tender age, is our number one prospect in the race system, Wander Franco. J.J., you've uh, been stalking around the office telling me and Josh, any, anyone who will listen to the latest, most exciting thing you learn about Wander Franco during this research process, talking with scouts, talking with front office officials. What can Rays fans expect? Again, this is a guy who has yet to make it out of rookie ball. He's in the Appalachian League. And it seems miles and miles and miles away. We've seen a few select ridiculous talents make that gap seem way shorter than it actually
0: is. It seems like Franco is one of those guys who could do that. The crazy thing is, is that yes, he is. I mean, he logically he is still far away. He played this year all year as a seventeen-year-old, one of the youngest players in the Appalachian League, the best player in the Appalachian League. And if you want to say, okay, well, what kind of timetable could he speed it up? You couldn't help but think of him doing that. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., our number one prospect, did the same thing in the Appalachian League. He was a seventeen-year-old, had a great year in the league. But the difference being is, is that Wander Franco's year was better than Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s, objectively. He was a better, it's like, it's like 70 points of batting average. The strikeout to walk, you're seeing the same crazy ability to walk more than you strike out. And by the way, Wander Franco's a shortstop doing it, not a third baseman. He has less defensive questions. If you're designing the perfect prospect, it's not Wander Franco. I think, like, again, in the Baseball America era, Alex Rodriguez, for everything, you know, the baggage that comes with that now, Alex Rodriguez was the perfect prospect. He was the number one pick in the draft that everyone was waiting for. He arrived and he was immediately better than everyone, you know, in every league he played in. Big leagues by Big 19. Big leagues, yeah, by is a teenager. MVP candidate by 21. Right. Yeah. Shortstop, all that. Okay, so I'm not saying Wander Franco's that. But. Can the guy hit? Oh, yes, he's he is freakishly good for his age at his ability to hit for average, to draw walks, to not chase, to do all those things that you want to see as far as is this guy going to be a productive hitter? High average is high on base. Does he have power? Well, I've gotten stories of him basically in workouts with Rafael Devers and him matching or exceeding Devers as far as raw power. And do remember, he's four years younger than Rafael Devers, and the power should only get better when he gets to his 20s, which is still a ways away. Okay, so check, he's got power. Well, what about defense? Well, you know, again, if we're looking for, he's not Francisco Lindor. He's not Javier Baez where you say, I look at this guy, and he could be a a 70 or an 80 defender. But could he play shortstop? Yeah, there's a lot of belief he'll be able to play shortstop. Does he have the arm for it? Yes, he has the arm for it. Can he run? Well, he's an above-average runner now. Maybe he slows down a little bit. It is hard to find things that are not positives. A weaknesses list for Ronda Franco for a 17-year-old is, it should be longer than it is. But the thing that also stands out, like you said, okay, well, how fast can you move him? Because again, this is the guy who, if he shows up early to spring training next year, he'll, you know, he won't turn 18 until March 1st. This guy is incredibly young. But the thing that is working against him there a little bit is is that the Rays are not an organization. The Rays viewpoint, which has worked very well for them, is better to bring a guy up two months too late than two months too early. And so normally with a guy, normally with even a really good prospect, especially on the pitching side, they're slow. They move him slowly. Wander is not a guy who's going to allow you to move him very slowly because my expectation is, is he's going to, if he goes to the Midwest League, which is where I think he'll go, he's going to tear it up. There is an example. Now, it's a previous regime. Basically, there's not much carryover now. But Evan Longoria, who was a college guy, but Evan Longoria was good enough that the Rays basically moved him very fast because they looked around and went, you know, we, we can't keep him down here. Wander Franco may be a guy who speeds your timetable up.
2: Yeah, I mean, also, Lingori is a really different situation as, as a Long Beach State call it collegiate baseman. Absolutely. Their basement, but I'm but saying, but
0: that was an example. Even like David Price, they don't do that. You, you know.
2: know, you look back at Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was in the Appalachian League in 2016, he will be in the majors in 2019. Mm-hmm. Again, You know, is Wander Franco, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., I I think you can't say that until he does what Vlad has done at the higher levels, but considering what they did at the same age in the same league, you can feel pretty confident that he can move along the
0: same timetable. Right. There is nothing, again, we don't have a crystal ball, but there is nothing he's done so far where you'd say, well, he's going to be slower than Vlad because of this. Right.
2: I will say, the thing with him, you know, you talk about there's no weaknesses to his game, but the big thing is the bat, switch hitter both sides rarely 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 swings and misses again it he's not facing the the cream of the crop pitching wise but you're 17 still facing some 20 year olds with some college experience what for you what kind of hitter is he going to be Jose Ramirez is the comp that came up pretty frequently for me and when I talked to him he's like hey, he's hey like, yes. that's who I want to be and because that's who is a good friend of mine and you know it's it's a similar body type again Franco is not this long lean it he's nice but he moves well but
0: he moves well the and Jose Ramirez real. Jose Ramirez doesn't look like it still 30 bases I was gonna no say problem. he was yeah he was an impact base runner
2: so so I think for me that that's kind of the comp I go to and hey if you can get an MVP 30-30 switch hitting candidate yeah you will love that that's a franchise player I mean for you is that the level or I mean is there an even
0: higher level I mean Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s bat playing shortstop, that's the, that is, again, that's the ceiling. I'm not saying he's going to do that, but he has, he, he draw, he, he is, um, he is near impossible so far to strike out. He does not swing and miss. He has that ability that is rare, that if he swings at a pitch, he is going to make contact, and usually he's going to make contact hard.
2: I will say, I did see him strike out swing and missing. Apparently that was a
0: unicorn sighting that say, I didn't know at the time. You should have like, okay, I will remember this day. I think
2: I, I did tweet it out, hey, he swung and missed. He struck out swinging. But yes, it's a it very is rare a very
0: rare situation for him. And again, like you're talking about, it is potentially a Vladimir Guerrero junior bat, but in a guy who at the worst... Stays up the middle. If you are pessimistic, he moves from shortstop to second, and he's a plus defender at second. That's a pessimistic viewpoint of his defense. Like there is, there is no reason he should not be able to stay up the middle at second or third short. By the way, he's got the bat. If you wanted to move him to third, he's got the arm. It should be fine there too. But, but again, that's what we're talking about, which is, you know, again, it's one of the best. He has as as high a ceiling as basically anyone in the minor leagues right now, and the reason for that is, is that he has a hitting ceiling, a hitting and power ceiling that ranks with anyone in the minors, and he plays a premium defensive position, and that just doesn't happen very often.
2: Again, it's important to remember there's no such thing as a guaranteed prospect. There's a lot of you know potholes along the route from the Appalachian League through four, four levels of full season ball up to the majors. Mm-hmm. But all you can do is look at a person, how they've done, their age, their pedigree, the scouting reports, and to this point,
0: again, there's and, not a lot to criticize. And go further than that, you also look at it and say, well, how is he doing it? You know, because again. We are talking about a a relatively small sample size. This is not even a full season statistically. But you watch how he does it. When you're watching a guy who almost no one can sneak a fastball by. When you're watching a guy who sees breaking balls off the plate or buried and he goes, nope. And like not, we're not talking about he starts his swing and then just before the ball crosses the plate, he holds up and he just checks his swing. We're talking about a guy who sees it, recognizes it, says no. And then you say, okay, well what about when he swings, when he unleashes, you know, how does he do that? He does it in an extremely controlled, aggressive way where from either side of the plate you're seeing power, but you're seeing power from a balanced swing. You're seeing power that's coming where you say, wow, not only is he getting to that power, not only is he showing rotational strength, not only is showing bat speed, but he's doing it in a way where He's really in more control than most, you know, like when we talk about big league hitters, big league hitters now, and I don't blame them, but it is a lot of times an aggressive, almost out of control swing. If you get in counts where you think you can do damage, you're going to go big. And if it means that, you know, anything other than the pitch you're looking at, you're going to have trouble making any kind of contact. That's not Wander Franco. He does it, the ways he does it matches the, the production that he's shown so far you drill down
2: a little bit the other thing that's promising about him too, switch hitters You look at the splits. He's on the right side of it in terms of his left-handed bat is much more productive than his right-handed They're both great But when you sometimes you see a switch hitter and you know they're gonna face more right-handers has that left-handed swing That's
0: his better side. So it lines up. Well there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's just not much. There's a lot to like I wrote his report and I finished it and it was like it felt like my computer had steam pouring off of it, and it's like, okay, let's go back in. Is, am I going overboard here? Do I need to tone this down? And then I did. Just like, okay, you know, let's not go overboard here. And you look at it again, it's like, no, this still would seem to be defined as overboard, but it's just realistic for him. He's, he's in a special, special talent.
2: You know, moving beyond him, Again, it's not like there's this great guy at the top and that's empty. No,
0: yeah, it's yeah. We're not gonna, you know, because again, it's it's behind the hard wall, so we're not gonna go through everyone on it, you know. But I
2: I do want to, you know, in terms of the tiers, uh, what for you? Again, there's there's a group of pitching prospects, you know, Honeywell, McKay, Liberatore, that are all really, really promising Mm -hmm. in terms of kind of those those tiers of prospects. How did you kind of assess all the pitching? Because that is an important part of the system.
0: Well, the thing that they also have is, they. They have now again. Honeywell is coming back from Tommy John surgery, but he's basically big league ready. He was if it had not been for Tommy John surgery, he would not be on this list because he would already be in the big leagues. So you have him coming back this year from TJ. You have Brendan McKay, who really the thing that stands out with Brendan McKay as a pitcher is it's really good stuff, but it's polish. It's a guy who he is safer than most. Again, there's there's a safeness to his him as a pitcher because. The command and control are already there with stuff. So the, that, that big hurdle that often pitchers have to do, you know, we can a lot of times talk about pitchers. If we're talking about Shay McClanahan on this list, Shane McClanahan is a high ceiling left-handed pitcher. However, what you also have with him is, is kind of that typical, it's really good, but he's not consistent. The control wavers, you, know, you know, there's a lot of work he has to do. The guys you just mentioned Matthew Libertor, for a high school arm is more polished than most of them. So again, he's risky because he's a high school pitcher who is just reaching pro ball, and we know that history. That is that always seems an to often risk. to be yes. That seems to be a, you know a history where you, you look back two years later and you go, okay, so which one survived? Um, but Brendan McKay, you know, again, you're talking about a, a, a guy who's who's quite polished. If he's just a pitcher, moves quite quickly. The, the hitter makes slows him down a little bit.
2: And and that's the next question I wanted to get to with him, because just to be frank, coming out of college, a lot of those who've seen him and said, the pitching is what separates him. As a hitter, he's just
0: he's just a he's guy, good. He's not
2: bad, but he's not if he, special. If he
0: had to make it make it work as a hitter, he'd have a chance.
2: But right now, you look at what he did this season on the pitching side. 103 strikeouts to 14 walks in 78 innings, got through three levels. Now, given there were some lower levels, but dominated on the mound, did what he was supposed to do, lived up to the hype. At those same lower levels, he did not hit well. 232 with no power, you know, got on base, walked a little bit. But, I mean, at what point did you, in your discussions with Ray's officials, was there ever a feeling of we're going to make this switch to being a pitcher only? no cuz
0: this is the rays these are the rays um, you know the rays i'm not saying they may not reach that point at some point because the problem you are going to have with him the analogy i would give is, is i was doing the rays i mean the royals list many years ago now and they had salvador perez and will myers were the catchers together on the on the wilmington team and Will Myers was a legit catcher. This is not a guy who just you put back there and you're like, we'll see if it works. No, he, has, he had the tools to potentially be a big league catcher. But the problem you had is that where his bat was probably at that point one year away from the big leagues, and it about was you know before they got him to the big leagues, his glove was probably three to four years away from the big leagues. And there's almost no situation I can think of in player development over this, in the 21st century, where you're gonna wait on a potential impact bat for an extra three to four years to see if the glove will catch up. And catcher, that's a rare situation. But that is, so the problem is, is if you have sent Will Myers to double A as a catcher at that point, he'd have been behind the plate, he'd have been overmatched massively. At the plate, he would have been like, this is great. And so he moved to the outfield for that reason. If you look at Brendan McKay, you're kind of facing, it's a different, but it's kind of the same problem as I see it, which is, as a pitcher, he is no doubt ready for double A. He's, he's there. Anything less than that is going to be basically him kind of shifting into overdrive, and the engine's just running at two, you know, 1500 RPM, just kind of waiting to be challenged. But as a hitter, it is very possible also, again, he has some tools. He may. Shohei Otani managed to figure out. He's such a good athlete that people forget. Shohei Otani, while having power, which Brendan McKay has, had some pretty awful offensive stat lines in Japan because it's hard to do both and pick up both at the same time. Well, early on, he kind of figured it out 2016-17. Right, but he did have... But well, early on, yes. Early on, he did. Like, early on, it looked like, why are they doing this? It is possible that you could throw Brendan McKay in the deep end in A and as a hitter his plate discipline, his strikes and awareness makes it all work out. It is also very possible that you will send him there and as a pitcher, his pitching is being a little bit affected by his struggles at the plate and as a hitter, he looks like he's just not ready for that level. And then you have the question at some point, okay, well, you're ready to help us as as a pitcher at the end of 2019, but as a hitter, you're two years away. Well, at some point, again, that may be it's the raise, so maybe they don't even completely give up on the bat. He gets to pinch hit in a rare situation every now and then. But at some point, the focus then shifts almost entirely to pitching because that's where his value lies. I can't imagine, again, his, he's going to have to exceed expectations at the plate to keep hitting because I can't imagine holding him back an extra year so that the bat can catch up. And right now, the bat's not caught up. I'm going to be fascinated to see, because we talked about the Rays move their
2: pitchers slowly anyway, if that plays into buying them any more time. To wrap up real quick, a lot of these guys we've talked about were, you know, high picks or been on the prospect scene for a little bit. The, the low and Lau, Brandon Lau, who made it to the majors, mm-hmm. and Nate Lowe, who we talked about the Rays moving guys slowly, well, he moved from high to double-A, AA, triple-A
0: this year. Both those guys did three levels this year, which is very rare for the Rays.
2: Overall, because sometimes I think sometimes you say college guys, you know, maybe they're just moving up quick But they're not really impact guys in the major leagues. These guys all these statistical indicators were there. There were good reports What is your thought on Brandon Lau and Nate Lowe and what
0: they really can be at the major league level now? It's interesting. I kind of see like two different paths there two very different players Brandon Lau has always hit. He's had a lot of injury problems. He's had significant injury problems that have cost him significant time. But when Brandon Lau's been healthy, pretty much everywhere he's ever gone, he's hit. The Rays, you know, the area scout who followed him believed in his hitting ability going back to high school. So him doing what he's done, the power is probably more than you know what most expected, including me. Um, but as far as being a hitter, and he's also done a really good job working him into being a better defender than he was supposed, to, than he was expected to be. But so with that, I do kind of look at with him and say, this is a guy you look at and say, okay, credit to him, he's exceeded expectations, but this was was within the range, at least, of possibility. He was the Florida State League MVP in 2017, so there, there was some background to this. Nate Lowe, Nate Lowe, as we sit here right now, is three times the prospect that he was at this time last year. And that's credit to him because that's not that he's just being noticed now because he's done it for the first time. Nate Lowe is a better player. Like he is a guy, when we talk about a guy who does transform himself, he got in better shape this year. He was looser. The power played even more. He was a better hitter. Everything about him, again, not that he did have some skills, some tools before, but everything is a – Almost everything is a grade, if not more, better than what it was. And so that's where you get a breakout season. Now, and so I I, I spell that out because I do see there's also a little difference as far as the paths going forward in that Brandon Lau, to me, is a pretty safe bet because he can play a decent second. He can play in the outfield, and I feel pretty confident he's going to hit. Nate Lowe is a, still a riskier. He has actually, I would say, higher upside because the upside of this guy is a guy who hits for high average with power. Now that is a 99%, you know, percentile. He reaches every bit of his ceiling. But that's what he did this year, especially in high A and double A, tailed off a little bit in triple A. But the big thing of him is, is for one, we have no track record behind. The track record before this year is nothing like this. Actually, by the way, one random thing that I wasn't able to fit into the write-up. Miles Straw, who's one of my favorites, who uh, plays for the Astros, made the big league roster this year. Made the ALDS roster. ALDS roster. You know, led the Miners and Steals this year. Miles Straw was at St. John's River, Florida, JC, with Nate Lowe, who transferred from Mercer. So those two were the one-two punch at St. John's River, you know, the next year. It's pretty which was... rare to see that two... two... Prospects on the same JC
2: team, JC right. team
0: like that. Two very, and they, they have both had great years there, but so, but with Low, there is a little bit more of he needs to show he can do it again, and the other part of it is is that he's a, he's a first base DH who does not really have much other position versatility, and he's not as good defensively as the first baseman they have right now, and Jake Bauer. So, his path is you really better hit because if you hit hard, if you hit well enough, no one cares about your defense but if you don't you don't have any other paths whereas Brandon Lau if he if his bat is if his bat ends up being 25 percent less than what we're hoping it could be he still because he can play multiple positions play second base still has a path where Nate Nate has a little harder path
2: absolutely well JJ just to wrap up obviously uh putting this 10 together I do have to ask. You mentioned there are, you know, 50 guys for 30 spots in the 30. I have
0: 65 guys who I could, you know, like if you asked me to write them up, they would be like not implausible guys. How
2: many guys truthfully were in
0: contention for top 10? The funny thing about that is, is that for the top 10, it actually was a little easier because it really felt like like when I did this, there are a number of very interesting guys in that kind of 11 to 15 range but after you get to 15 like this top 10 is so good that there is a pretty clear gradation the problem i'm going to have is when you get to when we do for the prospect handbook when you get to 25 to 30 saying that this guy at 28 is better than this guy at 35 then we are really gonna be talking about it is going to be the most minuscule of margins because they have a lot of somewhat interesting relievers. They have a lot of guys coming back off of significant injuries who it's easy to forget about. It's like, it's not just Brent Honeywell, but it's Brent Honeywell and it's Anthony Bonda and it's uh, uh, Michael Mercado we uh, broke down. We had, uh, you know, Jose De Leon who we have never seen the Rays have never seen the Jose De Leon the Dodgers saw before. You know we we don't know was that partly because of injuries. You know is he actually better than that? Um, you have guys like that in addition. You have, you know, you, you still have guys like Jalen Beeks we saw in the big league. There's a there are a lot of names to sort through with this organization and a lot of guys to line up. And again, the thing that stands out with that is that they're not all going to make it. Not all the guys in this top 10 are going to make it. However, if they want to be aggressive, and again, when I say aggressive with the Rays, that doesn't mean that they're going to go out and sign Bryce Harper, obviously. But if they want to be aggressive and they want to make trades, they have a lot of ammunition to make trades. They have literally a second baseman at almost every level who is a plausible big league prospect of some sort. Some have more value than others. They have close to where you could say that, they have probably four, you know, behind Willie Adamas, they have like four shortstops who are plausible shortstop, big league shortstop prospects. They have a number of outfielders. They have a lot of arms. I mean, that's one thing also at the opener last year is is the opener works partly because they had an entire plausible group of relievers at AAA, all of whom had options, who you could bring up whenever you needed to. And so... It makes it easier to rely more on your bullpen when you have the guys you have on your big league staff, your big league bullpen, plus another five to six guys in AAA who you say, oh, we need Diego Castillo. Let's bring Diego Castillo. You need Ryan Stanek, bring up Ryan Stanek. It's kind
2: of, the opener doesn't really work if you have a 12-man staff. It works if you have a 20-man staff. And the they raise have a di- 20... They, they, raise they played
0: 23 rookies this year. Yeah. That's the 23 rookies... And won 90 games. Normally those things don't go together. It's a pretty amazing combo, and I'll be very interested to see how this offseason goes because you do look at them and you say, okay, I mean, to, one downside for that is, is you got, they got 90 wins, which is great, but you kind of feel like that they got everything they possibly could out of the group they had. Now, if they're going to exceed 90 wins, which in their division they're going to need to do if they want to be in the playoff race probably, they want to exceed 90 wins next year, which they do. You're going to have to get some of these young guys, Jake Bowers and guys like that, have to take a, another a step forward. But the other thing is, is they've got to hit on all these moves again, you know, and that's hard to do. They're, they're a smart organization, but, you know, they managed to find value in the Joey Wendells of the world this year. They've got, to do, they've got to do the same kind of thing again next year, and it's hard to, to do that year after year.
2: Absolutely. Regardless, the Rays have a very, very interesting future, and uh, you can read more about it in uh, the next issue of Baseball America. Pick it up on newsstands. And also BaseballAmerica.com. BaseballAmerica.com has the full list with scouting reports. We encourage you to check it out. That'll do it for this edition of the Baseball America Prospects podcast. For J.J. Cooper, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening, everybody.